We're in the second week of a series titled In the Middle. And with that, we're taking a look at some biblical examples of some of the heavy hitters of faith. And let's face it, if, if you didn't end up on the cutting room floor when the, God put his word together, you're somebody big. So we're examining some of the lives, some of the accounts of these heavy hitters of faith who, uh, it turns out, have seasons where things don't go well for them where things are tough, they're difficult, they're hard, they're full of angst. Even as they are following God correctly, things sometimes get tough. Wait a minute, you might think. That's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to go down in the waters of baptism and you come up and there's four little bluebirds circling just above your head. And if you hold your finger up, a sweet little butterfly will come and land on it. And then you can get butterfly kisses. That's how my baptism was. I don't know about yours. I'll be brutally honest and say, if you think that's how life goes for the followers of God, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, you've only been skimming the high points. You've only been skimming the cliff notes. In fact, I tend to think it as a sign of the validity of Scripture that we have all these lousy times of life listed and documented, that we we see people who are mighty people of faith doing really mighty dumb things sometimes. If there were a, if it were all fictional, there'd be a lot more butterflies involved, but there aren't. So today, we're going to delve into the life of one of the heaviest heavy hitters, one of the coolest cats in the Old Testament, by the name of Elijah. Not Elisha. Elisha was last week in Rob's message about Naaman. Elijah was the predecessor of Elisha. In, in fact, he was Elisha's mentor. Uh, so Elijah predates Elisha. If you'd like to, to follow along or at least know where we're coming out of, we're coming out of 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 primarily. We'll have a lot of scriptures up here. If you'd like to look in one of the, the Bibles that we have scattered throughout the seats, that's page 243. That's your shortcut. And as always, these Bibles are available. If you need a Bible or know somebody that needs one, take one with you. That's what they're here for. So before we get into the story of Elijah, I need to go through a whole bunch of history uh, to set the stage for you. And I'm going to cram this in really fast because uh, I may have gone a little long uh, first service, especially considering Kelly's message uh, early on in the service. And some, some of those people are still picking their kids up to leave right now. So I'm going to try to really speed it up this time. Here, this is a list of the leaders of Israel. In this, we start with King David. King David was the second king of Israel. He came right after King Saul. King Saul was kind of a, a dirtbag. Uh, king David did pretty well. He did some, some dumb things. He made some bad choices, bad decisions, but he always came right back to God and said, hey, I, I am sorry, uh, I'm, I'm following you. And so he was deemed a man after God's own heart. He ruled the people of Israel for 40 years. His son Solomon came along, prayed for wisdom. God gave him more wisdom than anybody ever had. He just didn't always apply it to his life the way he should have. But overall, deemed a, a good leader of Israel, also led for 40 years. These other jokers start coming in and they're leading for two years and three years and four years and all sorts of things. And you probably don't know many, if any, of their names. But right after Solomon, Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Where's Rehoboam on the list? Rehoboam is leading now a Split kingdom with Jeroboam. The kingdom splits. The tribe of Judah goes over here and follows Solomon's son. And Solomon's son ain't anything to brag on. 
Jeroboam is on this side, and he takes all the other tribes of Israel with him. And you would think tribe named Israel would have their act together, and they certainly do not. So that's why I've shorthanded these. Jeroboam is a dirtbag in the sense that right off the bat, he raises two golden calves and sets them up in a worship center for the people of Israel. What kind of moron does that? Does he not have a copy of God's word at all? Nadab follows him, also a dirtbag, worships idols. Baasha follows him, also a dirtbag, worships idols. Elah follows him, also a dirtbag, spoiler alert, worships idols. Zimri, dirtbag, worships idols. Omri is a massive dirtbag. I give massive because the Bible says Omri sinned more than all of the guys that came before him worships idols. And finally, we get to Ahab, which brings us up to the story of Elijah, also a massive dirtbag. And it says in scripture, he sinned even more than Omri, who sinned more than everybody before him. And so he's the co-star of this story. See, each of these so-called leaders sat on the throne of Israel, but they didn't adhere to the rule of God. They did not live like Israel was a theocracy. They, they lived like it was their personal empire and they could do whatever they wanted to in it. But every time they would pass the scepter on, they would spiral further and further away from God. And it, this idea brings with it pagan worship, which started actually back because Solomon married so many wives and concubines. He had a thousand wives and concubines, which means primarily he had treaties with all these other pagan people groups. And they worshipped idols, so the idol worship from them leaked into the people of Israel. So at this point, Ahab is king of Israel, and he takes as his queen the daughter of a pagan ruler. Guy's a genius. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the sight, in the eyes of the Lord, than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, he's the guy that put the golden calves in place, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, and that portion of his name, Baal, is key, married uh, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. If you're wondering, an Asherah is kind of the female counterpart to the Baals. Uh, and he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the king of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. So why is this all a big deal? Why is this pagan worship a big deal? Well, for one thing, it's because God is a jealous God. How do we know that? Because God says in Exodus, I am a jealous God. Now, before you get all judgy on God, compare this to having your kids start hanging out with Kevin who lives next door to you and he's 30 something and Kevin never seems to have a job or soap or a hairbrush, but he always has a lot of weed. And then one day uh, you realize that they're calling him dad. And then one day you find your 10 year old going through your wallet because in his opinion, Kevin needs some new roach clips. Are you a jealous dad yet? Yeah. But let me add to it a bit. The worship of Baal, and Baal is being used here, it's kind of a catch-all name. There are specific gods that are existing in the promised land that God has told his people will be all theirs if they will go in the way he wants them to. 
Now, we're able to track exactly which Baal this was because we know where Jezebel came from. We know where she brought that influence. And it would be the Tyrian god named Melkart. This is uh, an archaeological find of Melkart. And being a man of God, I just want to slap the smirk right off of his face. But I don't need to do that. I'm not going to give you the spoiler alert on that, but his times are coming. So the worship of Melkart requires a lot of animal sacrifices. But from time to time, when things get tough, it requires more serious sacrifices. Imagine the call. Who here loves Melkart and is de- dedicated enough to Melkart to give up their own child for a sacrifice today? And then you see Kevin walking one of your kids up to the altar. Are you jealous now? I've heard people talk about the evil, selfish God of the Old Testament and talk about him like he's different than the loving God that Jesus portrays. This God of the Old Testament who is selfish, who is not understanding, who is not patient, who tells his people, go into the promised land that I'm giving you, and when you go in, I want you to kill everything in that promised land. I want you to eradicate every people group in that promised land. I want you to kill the men, the women, their children. I want you to kill their goats, their oxen oxen, their cattle, their sheep, everything. And it was so sad that Israel never did that. But before you get upset about God's lack of fairness, God's lack of kindness, God's lack of universal acceptance, God's inability to come across as woke, it's tantamount to criticizing the parent who before sending their kids out to play in the yard, first clears it of rattlesnakes. Sorry, eco-champions, if there are rattlesnakes in my backyard, they're going to die before I send my kids in there to play. So here's your stage. This is Israel. This is God's chosen people. And Ahab and Jezebel are not only the political leaders, but they're the worship leaders. And the things happening in the name of worship are as vile as can be. In steps Elijah. This is pretty cool because maybe you know Elijah. But at this point, all we know about Elijah's history is in steps Elijah. Elijah is from Tishbe, so he's a Tishbite. You can make fun of his name and and his ancestry. It begs to be made fun of. Uh, He's a mysterious man. Uh, We don't know what his background is. He's just, he seems like this strong, mysterious character. Well, I actually, I found an actual photo of Elijah. This is Elijah, <laughs> Elijah the prophet, the Tishbite. And you can see the uh, Israeli hills in the background. The powerful dude, powerful dude. And Clint, uh, Elijah walks into, he, he first shows up, he walks into Ahab's throne room and he says, and I, I've been working on my, my Eastwood. He says, uh, the God I serve says, no dew or rain till I say so. And then he walks out. It's just this really cool moment. The testosterone starts to raise in the room when you read that. He goes in and 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 he makes a statement in front of Ahab, in Ahab's own throne room, and then he walks out. Or maybe he jogs out. Or maybe he books it out. Because it says right after that, God told him to go to a, a brook named Kareth, 
And that was essentially just kind of a hideout in the wilderness that still had running water. Now, let me go back and mention, this is really uh, an interesting challenge because Melkart was viewed as the god of rain, the god of dew, and the god of water. So he says, no more water. It, it occurred to me what, a, what an incredible moment it might have been if, if they had just done a child sacrifice in the name of Melkart. And in comes Elijah and says, no more. So he's now heading out to this hideout because there's a wet weather stream there. And then the stream dries up over time. And he goes to a second hideout, which is with a widow woman. And uh, then he stays there for like three and a half years total. After three and a half years, he shows back up to Ahab. Upon seeing him, Ahab says, it's you, you stinking troublemaker. And this starts one of the most magnificent venues, this most magnificent uh, challenge that mankind has ever seen. Elijah says, I'm not the one who abandoned God for a bunch of bales. In fact, How about this? You bring all 450 prophets of Baal that lead worship for Israel now. All the people that you pay off and you take care of and you treat with honor and respect like they're somebody. And tell your wife to get together the 400 prophets of Asherah, which is like the female counterpart for Baal. Get those 450, 400 prophets of Asherah and bring them too. And while you're at it, let the entire nation of Israel know, because I'm calling you out. Come on, man. That's a really good Eastwood. Come on. Meet me in the hall afterwards. We'll see who does it best. So, so this really amazing location for it just sets the stage. It's Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is, the, is not quite the highest mountain in all of the nation of Israel, but it only misses it by less than 100 feet. This is a picture of the view from Mount Carmel. You can see... Just miles and miles and miles, 360 degrees around. If you were to flip that view, you would see the ocean way off in the distance, which plays into the rest of the story. And I, I beg you to, play the re- to, to read through the rest of the story uh, very, very soon, later today, if you can at all. And I know this is Mount Carmel because this is one of two things I saw before I was quarantined with COVID in the Holy Lands for the rest of my 10-day tour. Don't rub it in. So Elijah shouts out to all of Israel, how long will you stay on the fence, Israel? If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And it says, and this is, I think, really telling of where the Israelites were at the time. It says the Israelites were dead silent. Apparently they were still enjoying sitting on the fence. Nobody was willing to take a stand either way. So Elijah issues this challenge. I'm going to take a young bull and and you guys take a young bull and we'll cut them up and we'll put them on our altars on the wood and we will not light the fires under them. We will ask our gods to light the fires and we'll see who follows through. So they think this is a pretty good deal. Elijah says, since it's 850 against one, it's not really fair to you guys. So I'll let you go first. So they take a bull, they cut it up, put it on the altar, it's on the wood. They start worshiping. Whatever it takes, whatever whatever kind of 
crazy worship band the pagan followers have, whatever type of crazy, sickening choreography, they start doing this and they, and they do and do and they dance and dance and they cry out and they sing and they make noise and they make music and it's just this nightmare scene I can imagine. It says, from morning until noon, they go wild on this. They're doing everything they can. And this is where Elijah starts earning that favorite spot in my heart. It says, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. I've got to respect that. He says, you'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he's a god. Uh, Perhaps he's daydreaming. Or he's relieving himself. In more than half of the the, uh, translations, it translates, in essence, that God's maybe in the restroom right now, and you're going to have to be louder. Or maybe he's away on a trip, and he's asleep and needs to be wakened. So the pagan worshipers really get incensed by this, and they really start going crazy. What more can they do? Well, it's a regular part of their worship. They start cutting themselves with knives and spears and whatever they have. They start offering their blood to their God to see if that will make the difference. To the point that Scripture says their blood was gushing out. I don't know exactly when it's a gusher, but you'll recognize it when it happens, I guarantee By the time they end, it looks like a scene from Greece meets The Walking Dead meets Carrie. At the time of the traditional evening sacrifice, Elijah goes over to where the altar of God has been trashed and and destroyed and, and the remnants strewn about, and he starts picking up stones. And he starts arranging them. It says specifically he took 12 stones to represent the unified country of Israel and Judah the 12 tribes, and he puts them in place and he piles the wood on and he takes the young bull and he sacrifices it and cuts it in chunks and puts it on top of the wool uh, of the wood. And he says, you know, this really isn't a fair fight still. Seeing as the living God now is going against your statue. Uh, so, so let's see if we can even things out. Would somebody bring me four really big jars of water? And this is interesting because what was Melkart the God of? Oh, yeah, water. So he says, bring some water out. I'm going to dig a trench around the bottom of this. Bring me four big jars of water. So they bring it. He pours it on the, on the altar, all over the wood, all over the bowl. He says, I need four more big jars. Can you, can you refill these and bring them out? Now, this is getting fun because they've not had rain for three and a half years, and water's at a premium. But if they don't give him the water then somehow the wood might catch on fire. So they give him the water because then the wood can't catch on fire. So they bring four more, dumps it out. He says, can I just get four more? Just four more. Feels like a nice round number. Actually, it feels like the number of tribes in Israel, doesn't it? We're back to 12. So he puts uh, jar 12 on there and it fills the trench and it saturates everything. And here's, here's why I love the contrast between what the prophets of Baal were doing for six to eight hours, just going crazy and raving and screaming and bleeding. Here's what Elijah does. It says he walks up to the altar and he prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes back to their roots. Prove today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. 
Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. I don't know if it was lightning or a pillar of fire or if a meteorite came out of the cosmos and just nailed the altar. But it says, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull. It burned up the wood. It burned up the stones and it burned up the dust. And then it licked up all the water that supposedly Melkart was supposed to be in charge of. And when all the people saw it, these people who were dead silent when they were sitting on the fence, they fell face down on the ground. This is really a good time to do it. And cried out, oh yeah, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Yeah, we've been saying that all the time. I'm sure glad you're here, Elijah. Such an incredible story. So much we can learn from it. I don't mean the the stuff with the altar and the fire from heaven. That that was cool. I don't mean the showdown in Ahab's throne room. That was that was pretty tense. It's pretty neat. When I say there's so much that we can learn from the story, I, I, I'm not talking about the flashback to Moses versus Yul Brenner. I'm talking about the 1,277 days in the middle of Elijah's story. You know, the days when nothing was happening. Now, those of you who are Bible scholars are a little irritated with me. Well, don't feel bad. That happens all the time. It's because I glossed over several things in the telling of the the leading up to that big showdown, didn't I? There were three very specific miracles that took place in the middle of Elijah's story. And we read through them just like that. It just takes a flash of time to go through them. But there's more that we need to be pulling out of it because big things are happening in the middle. There are three specific miracles. Number one is the miracle of the ravens. After the showdown in Ahab's throne room, God tells Elijah to go to the Kareth Ravine. The Kareth Ravine is called a wadi, W-A-D-I. That means it's kind of a wet weather drainage, if you know what that is. It's for six months out of the year in a good year. The, the, the Kareth Ravine has the Kareth Brook running through it. It's a nice little body of water. You can go even see it to this day. It's easily identified. But every six months during the dry season, it dries up and disappears. During the time that Elijah is there, he is fed by ravens and sustained by the water of the brook. Then miracle number two. After the brook dries up, he goes, as God directs, to Zarephath, where he meets a widow and her son who are preparing to eat the last handful of flour that they have, the last little cup of olive oil, and their plan is to eat it and die because they have nothing else. Miraculously, God sustains the three of them by extending the meal and the oil so that the jars never run dry during the duration of this drought. And miracle number three is the widow's son. The widow's son becomes ill, gravely ill, worsening and worsening until finally the boy dies. Elijah is miraculously able to bring the boy back to life. We see the post-miracle report and we think, this is is impressive. This is amazing. Uh, God was with him the whole time. It must have just been really cool. He always knew that God was taking care of him. And I think that Elijah would reply to that, are you kidding me? Last week, Rob said, 
All we want is to skip the middle and get to the miracle. Now, Rob says a lot of things during the course of a week that I wouldn't brag on. But this is solid gold. This is good material. This will preach. Don't we want to skip the faith part? Because that gets hard and go right to the fun. But I want to go through this with you because I think we've missed the idea that being in the middle for Elijah was anything but fun. It was the worst. We envision this cheap movie version of Elijah. Uh, He's the prophet. He's smooth. He's confident. He uh, is implacably calm always. And he has this little bit of a cultured accent. And here he is in an Eden-esque little environment alongside the brook Cherith, which is running in pure, clean water. And he raises his hand to the sky, and a raven flies in and delivers a freshly wrapped Chick-fil-A sandwich with a side of waffle fries. And he says, Ah, thank you, my winged friend, for bringing me sustenance. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible has Elijah running from Ahab. The the original Hebrew word is skedaddle. He is running from Ahab and he is holding up in a brushy ditch. I've seen pictures of it. It is a brushy ditch. And he stays there for months. Now, I'm sure it doesn't take quite as long for the wadi to dry up because there's no more rain. But he stays there that whole time. And when it comes to the raven, I know what you're thinking. You're picturing a crow in your mind. A crow is not a raven. We don't have to deal with ravens here. A raven, it turns out, is as many as four times larger than a crow. In fact, here this will put it in, into a perspective for you. A raven is bigger than a a red-tailed hawk. If you've ever seen the hulking hawks that sit on the power line sometimes. So we've got this big beast of a bird. And if a raven is your DoorDash driver, here's what the internet says you can expect to be on its menu. Here are what ravens love to eat. Trash, carcasses, lizards, frogs, nestlings stolen from other birds' nests, meat, of, of any source or variety, insects, and carrion or decaying flesh. So let's put yourself in his shoes, in his sandals, in his little Eden-esque environment. Or to, to make it easier to understand, let's say your kid's playing out in the yard. You just killed all the rattlesnakes, right? Kid's out playing in the yard, and you look out the window, and a bird flies over, and something drops from the bird and lands in the yard, and your kid sees it. And your kid goes over and picks it up. Right now, moms are, are doing uh, the halfback routine. They're, they're knocking people out of the way so they can get out and stop their child. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. They pick it up. They look it over. And just as mom gets to the door to go outside, pops it in his mouth. Ain't that fun? No. No. Now, here's the thing about these ravens. Twice a day. A raven brings some sort of bread and some meat from an unidentifiable source and drops it for Elijah. And no matter how good it might look, it just fell out of the beak of a carrion eater. So we know that Elijah's faith hits the wall between theory and reality. And here's the kicker. It happens in his mouth. Praise the Lord that he doesn't test our faith that strongly each and every day. 
As for the widow situation, Elijah's finally allowed to crawl out of his ditch after a few months, only to find his next destination has none of the exciting culinary variety that the ravens provided. I'm sure he starts with a classy, Fear not, my good woman, for thy meal and thy oil shall not fail thee before the end of the drought. Okay, did I mention 1,277 days that Elijah is dealing with this? Pretty soon, Elijah's journal starts reading, Day 406, oily flour cakes again. I'm quite certain the widow's trying to kill me. (laughs) Oh, but Keith, the dramatic death to life miracle with the widow's son, that's got to be exhilarating. Listen, I don't think it was. This lady's son dies, and she grabs Elijah by the lapels of his handy-dandy robe. And if you don't see this in your mind, you've never seen a woman in distress. And she starts shaking him with spittle flying, saying, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come all this way to remind me of my sin and to kill my only son? There is no... Fear not, good woman, for my God has heard thy prayers. There's no King James involved in this. I think Elijah is so taken aback and so dumbfounded and so clueless that he doesn't know what to do. But he sure doesn't want to try it in front of her at the moment. So scripture says he sweeps up the boy's body and he runs it up to the guest room where he's been staying. And here's where the KJV would break down for him because he prays to God and it's not a gentle little prayer. It says this, he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on the woman widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. I think you've got to remember that he doesn't have a plan. He is panicked. And when God brings the boy back to life, it proves where the, where the mom was. He left the mom downstairs. It says he takes the boy back downstairs. And I can only imagine the, the maniacal, almost nervous laughter as he says, Look, here, your son's alive. He's alive. <laughs> Why do we assume that nothing of value happens in the middle of these stories? In the middle of these stories is where the meat of it all exists. I think we miss it because in part the mountaintops get all of the screen time. The mountaintops are where showdowns take place. That's where we jump into the movie an hour and a half in and you know things are building to this huge climax and it's going to be amazing special effects. But we don't like the middle. In fact, I'd venture to say in our our tech-based, entertainment-paced world, we don't have the patience to hang out in the middle much anymore. But I'm telling you that the middle is your best opportunity to strengthen your reliance on God and to build a foundation of faith durable enough to see us through to the next mountaintop. And this is a big thought. This is a thought that has never occurred to me before preparing for today's message, and I would wager that it's never occurred to you. From what we know about Elijah, and remember his history, Elijah came to Ahab. From what we know about Elijah, these are the first and only miracles that he has ever seen. What does he have to call on 
Does he have this amazing experience with God? Does he look at the widow and say, no problem. We do dead to life all the time. Does he, does he imagine every time the widow pours the cornmeal out of the jar that this could be the last one for 1,200 days? I think I would be wondering at some point, what happens if there's no more oil or food? What happens to him? He's living in the middle And it is not an easy place to be. But I'll tell you this, without spending three and a half years in a wadi, hiding in a ditch, or going to a widow's house and seeing God provide day after day after day after day after day after day, seeing him bring the dead to life, I don't think that he would have had the wherewithal to stand up and challenge 850 prophets in a duel. And don't mistake this, it was a duel to the death Because if you read the rest of the story, that's what happened to the losers in this one. Don't forget that mountaintops are amazing, but they require a climb, and to climb a mountain requires amazing levels of strength. I'm going to give you three things to do when you feel stuck in the middle. These are are not going to be incredible things. These are just practical things I'd like you to remember if you can. Number one... If you're stuck in the middle, remember your faith in God. You might have this incredible faith story with God. You might have chapter after chapter after chapter of coming into God and speaking to him, and he responds in certain ways. Or maybe you're brand new to the faith. Maybe your, your big step of faith so far has been, I came to church today. doesn't matter which one it is. If you're in the middle, take the time to reflect back on where God has been active in your life before. It's good to have that reserve to draw from. If you're very new to the faith, look for instances where other people have this history and try to learn from them. I love when God's thumbprint shows up in ways that make me very aware that he knows me and he knows what I need and he knows how to reach my heart. There's... Uh, an instance that just happened last weekend, we had the men's conference at White Mills Christian Camp up in Kentucky. And when we started planning that, uh, a lot of it was built around this one image that I had. I had a friend uh, named Shane Champion. He lives down in George, in, in uh, Chattanooga. And uh, an amazing young man, former military. And one of the things that Shane did as a hobby was that he built medieval armor for himself by hand. He showed me his coat of mail, and he made that coat of mail one wire link at a time with a set of needle nose pliers. It was amazing stuff. He had this massive helmet. He, had, he, had, he was just covered in armor, and he would build this armor, and you would think after you build armor like that, you put it in a showcase or you put it up for display. Not him. He puts it on. He goes to the local park, and he finds another guy who's just as psychotic as he is, and they beat each other with weapons. No punches pulled, just going at each other, the type of thing where you're pretty sure you shouldn't call the police, or maybe you should call like a physicist, because it looks like some dudes have time warped out from 800 years ago, and they're trying to kill each other in the park. So the, the thing I loved about Shane is as a Christian, he did this amazing presentation with his armor and relating it to the armor of God in Ephesians. It was just powerful stuff. So I wanted to find out if he knew, if anybody lived... Now, he's down in Chattanooga. It's about two and a half hours away. Do you know anybody that lives up in 
Louisville, Kentucky, which is only about an hour from the camp. And he says, well, well, I'll come. How about I'll come? I'm like, man, I don't want you to do that. It's like, that's like six hours. He said, oh, no, I'll come. I love doing that. So I'm like, okay. Well, partway into the planning, and it's a whole other story, but he had a resurgence of cancer that had come at him 20 years earlier and had left a, a, a definite mark on him. Well, it came back with a vengeance. So I know at that point, he's not going to be able to come up. He's, he's got a battle of his own that he has to deal with, and that's, that's the way it's played out. He is still in that battle. So I hated to give up on it because I just knew the impact that it could have. So I get on Facebook, and I'm, I'm searching around, and I actually find a couple of guys up in the Louisville area who seem to at least build their armor. I don't know if they're attacking each other. I send out a couple messages. Nothing, nothing. This was about six weeks later. Uh, I opened Facebook one day, and I've got a message from a guy, and I think, I don't even know this guy. And I open it, and it says, hey, I'm sorry I didn't see your message about the armor. Uh, I'd like to figure out exactly what you're looking for. Oh, yeah, I did. I did message this guy. So we went back and forth one evening messaging. By the time we had finished, by the time I had explained to him what I was looking for, he had already sent emails out to about five different men. And the next day, he contacts me and says, I've got a guy who lives in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, who wants to help. The cool thing is, Elizabethtown is 30 minutes away from the camp. It's very sweet. So I contact the guy. He contacts me. This is only, we're down to like a week before the conference. And I'm on the phone with this guy. And he's, he says, I've got a friend coming. Um, it's, we're, we're both going to be there. We're going to go into battle. We're going to do some demo stuff. And I said, that's fantastic. I said, look, bring your family with you. The, the camp is wonderful. It's got this beautiful river that goes around. It's a beautiful campus. He says, I don't know that I mentioned this before, but he says, I'm from White Mills, Kentucky. <laughs> Nobody's from White Mills, Kentucky, folks. White Mills, Kentucky currently has a population of 269. And most of them are not home. (laughs) That, to me, was the thumbprint of God. Like, he tied the bow. He gave me the gift, and just to make sure it was super pretty, he put sparkles on it. I preached this first service, and I get a message back from John Sage. Sage, who works at the well, uh, is a wellspring attender as part of our family here. He said, hey, the thumbprint of God, just wanted you to know, a church came this, week, this past week. They had done a food drive, and they had prayed for a goal of 1,000 pounds of food. We put it on the scale. It was to the ounce, 1,000 pounds of food. Thumbprint of God. It's an amazing thing. Remember, in the middle is where you should reflect on God's past with you where he has shown up before. Number two, reset your dependence upon God. Being in the middle is a great time to take stock in God's current involvement in your life. I believe Elijah had his moments, even in the midst of these 1,200 days of miracles where he just thought, I wish God would do something, you know? Use the slow time in the middle to identify how God sustains you. 
I've used the word sustained several times in this story intentionally because I don't want to forget how much sustenance, how much sustaining it takes me to be able to get out of bed any given morning. And I don't mean that as a joke, like I'm too lazy to get out of bed. I mean, physically, your body functioning in a thousand miracles to be able to sit upright, to be able to swing your legs over the side, to be able to stand to brew the coffee, to drink it, to process the coffee, to make it to the office, to deal with other people in a way that makes sense, to be able to organize your own thoughts. And if you don't think that's miraculous, when you lose the ability to do any one of those things, you start praying for a miracle, don't you? In the middle is where we should look for God's presence now, even if it's difficult to find. And lastly, resolve in your commitment to God. Once you've spent time on steps one and two, you can do the basic math. If number one is, let's look back at how I've seen God work in the past. Number two is, how do I see God working with his hand around me now? The best course of action is number three, follow him. Follow him. If one and two exist, three has to be obey God and go his direction. If you're not familiar with the promises that God has made, you probably aren't aware of how many exist. And this is next to nothing. But if you'll Google the promises of God, you'll start coming up with really cool images people have put together, reminders of those promises. He will never leave you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Don't go crazy because you have weaknesses. Or he says this, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the middle is where we should prepare to follow in God's plan. Back in high school, okay, it was a long time ago. I'm aware of that. But back in high school, my senior year, a new girl moved into, into town. It's a small town. She sat in front of me, Mr. Mormon's psychology class. And uh, the, the, the longer I spent around and lo- the more attention uh, that I uh, spent focusing and, and watching and learning, I eventually realized that I needed to ask this girl out. So the, this, the, the second semester of my senior year, I asked her out. This, this was my pitch. I thought it was a pretty good pitch. Hey, you know, the spring weather is supposed to be really good this weekend. I'm thinking about going for a drive out in the country, and I wondered if you'd like to come with me. Now, it could have been the coolness of this. It could have been my 71 Mustang three-speed. Oh, it was a sweet, sweet car. But she said yes, regardless of what it was. So on a beautiful Saturday, I swung by her house, I picked her up, and we headed out of town, across the bridge, and into the Missouri River Bottoms, which primarily there was thousands of acres of soybeans and corn. We made two stops on that drive that day. The first stop was to a little country church out in the middle of nowhere, to the cemetery where my best friend had been buried three years earlier. It was the first time that I had had opportunity to go back. And it was the last time, to be honest, that I've ever gone back to that location. But I took her there. And then the second stop was to Kenny's family farm uh, to visit 
his folks. Kenny had been their only child. And they were a little long in tooth at that point. There was not any hope that they would ever have another child. But I swung us by. We knocked on the door. They welcomed us in. They were one of the most nondescript couples that I've ever met in my life. Kenny's dad was this gnarled little callus of a man with thinning hair and, and just looked like he worked every day of his life before the sun rose and worked till long after it set. Kenny's mom was this little wisp of a lady, buck teeth, horn-rimmed glasses, not because they were fashionable. She looked as faded out as the, the old dresses that she wore. But they welcomed us into their home. And, and I know some of this could just be my perception, but it seemed like whatever vibrancy this couple ever had in their life uh, bled out with the death of, of their son, Kenny. But we visited them for a while and, and just had a pleasant time and said our goodbyes and jumped back in the car and headed back to town. I never did get away from the feeling of, of weight as we were there thinking they probably are looking at me and this young lady thinking that's where Kenny would be had tragedy not intervened in his life. I've told folks about that date before and mostly I hear responses like, what is wrong with you? Why would you take anybody on a drive like this, much less to those two destinations? And I try to explain to them that it wasn't about the destinations at all. It was about the 45-minute drive to the destination and the 45-minute drive back from the destination. It was not about the destination. It was about the time spent in the middle. And that time spent in the middle for me in this occasion changed my life because just three weeks ago, That girl and I celebrated the 42nd anniversary of that drive into the country. And in two weeks, we celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. So I say that there is value to be found in the middle for those who have the patience and the perception to pursue it. Don't fall into the trap of comparing your being in your middle to other people's mountaintops. That's an unfair comparison. But realize that whatever you're going through in the middle is preparing you the strength to make the climb ahead. I'm convinced that the biggest difference between us and the heavy hitters of faith is that they faithfully outlasted the middle, they made the most of the middle, and they learned from experience that the same Lord who is the God of the mountaintops is the same Lord who is the God of the dry valley days. I'd like to pray with you before we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for stories like this. That as we dig and unfold, we find out that people like Elijah were so much more than we have realized. But at the same time, they also are so much less of their own strength. But in your hands, with their faithfulness, when they offer themselves to you, it is unmatchable strength that comes into them, and they change the world around them. Help us to remember that when we're in our driest days, that the same God is with us, the same God loves us, 
the same God sustains us. Help us draw all our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.